Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It is Thursday, February 23. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, this story is by Grace King and the title, Students and Unity Point Work to Solve Puzzle. An occupational therapy puzzle for children is being improved by two students in the Iowa BIG, BIG, program in partnership with Unity Point Health, an effort that could generate more interest in careers in the healthcare industry. The students, Lexi Harrison and Lucy Howe, both juniors at Prairie High School, are working in Unity Point Health's Generate Lab at St. Luke's Hospital to reverse engineer the toy to create something more durable. It's a cool experience being able to help people in the medical field while they're still in school, House, while we're still in school, Howe said. It's a lot of pressure, but a good pressure you want to feel. The Iowa Big Program challenges high school students to team up with businesses to work on projects. This gives its students the ability to learn and use real-world skills, such as leadership, accountability, and teamwork on projects about which they are passionate while earning high school credit. The Occupational Therapy Toy is a standard Melissa and Doug brand puzzle, puzzles that typically are made with wood and have pegs to easily remove and replace the pieces with voice recording capability. If the puzzle includes a picture of a cow, for example, it can be programmed to moo every time the cow is moved. The program Puzzle also can be programmed to play songs such as Old MacDonald Had a Farm. Emily Robbins, Senior Occupational Therapist at Unity Point Health's Whitwer Children's Therapy, said she uses the toy for children with delayed fine motor skills of their fingers and hands or to improve language skills. Kids can work on imitating sounds and pairing it with objects, Robbins said. You can't have a conversation with a two-year-old on why they should do their exercises. You have to find ways to motivate them. The current devices, which the students are studying to create new ones, are over a decade old and a few of them are broken. Robin said she can't wait for the new product to be completed so some of her patients can benefit from it. Another important part of the puzzle is that it can be disinfected between uses to prevent the spread of infections as the toy will be used by more than one patient. The toy will be manufactured with 3D printers at the Generate Lab and reproduced as needed. The students are working on creating the prototype and coding or programming the puzzle so it will play the desired sounds. The process is very tedious, Harrison said. A code is a set of instructions that tells the technology what action to take. Small mistakes like a space or a period in the wrong spot will make the code ineffective. The students knew very little about coding before starting the project but are learning through Arduino, a programming software easy to use for both beginners and professionals. The new device will be more customizable for each patient and easier for therapists to use, said Rose Hedges, Nursing Research and Innovation Coordinator with Unity Point Health. The students not only are learning how to code and use a 3D printer, but are learning about the healthcare industry, how to give a professional presentation, and even how to dress professionally and send an email, Hedges said. 
Howe and Harrison both are interested in careers in the healthcare industry someday. Howe, who has undergone a couple of surgeries in the last year, said she wants to help people in the way that she has been helped. They also both see themselves choosing to potentially live in eastern Iowa after college. Someday down the line, maybe my kid or my friend's kid has to go through physical therapy and they use this toy that I made. Or if I go into the healthcare profession, I'm using this toy I built to help another child, Harrison says. Also on the front page, Lynn Housing gets $38 million in derecho aid. This story is by Marissa Payne. An influx of federal funding awarded this week will aid in Lynn County's recovery from the 2020 derecho, fueling a massive investment in the construction of 290 new housing units after much of the area's housing stock was damaged by the storm's ferocious winds. The city of Cedar Rapids received more than $24 million through the Community Development Block Grant Disaster Recovery Funds, the lion's share of approximately $38 million awarded to Lynn County, which bore the brunt of the derecho's devastation. Overall, the award supports 94 multifamily units, 48 of which are affordable, and 76 for-sale single-family units within Cedar Rapids. In other parts of Lynn County, the funds will support 92 rental units and 28 single-family units. The mayor and city council have recognized the importance of creating new housing opportunities, whether that's residential or multifamily, and we very much appreciate this program and the state's support, City Manager Jeff Pomerantz said. The funds were allocated by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development and funneled through the Iowa Economic Development Authority. Single-family projects are Cherry Hill, 165000 for a unit from West Waters, Foxtail Ridge, $2.61 million for 16 units from Adobe Construction, Fruitland, 165000 for a unit from Waters, Ginkgo Ridge, $3.76 million for 16 units from Josh Bass's Bass Development Group. Green Acres Grove, $5.5 million for 25 units from Autumn Woods' TW Homes, Inc. Kirkwood Village, $2.2 million for 14 units from Hannah Kustis with Adobe Construction. Meadowlark, $165,000 for a unit from Waters and Shamrock Village, 330000 for two units from Steve Emerson, for a total of $15.09 million. In the multifamily projects, in Gray, or from Greyhawk, $3.69 million for 40 units from Darrell High, and Johnson Gas received $4.75 million for 50 units from Emerson, Northwest Neighborhood Infill Project, $380,000 for four units from Charles Nichols' JPAC Investments, and that total is $8.825 million. Cedar Rapids Community Development Director Jennifer Pratt said the funds will help provide opportunities for infill development and create housing throughout the community. With costs of construction, the interest rates going on, having these programs really make sure that workforce housing is continuing to be built, Pratt said. We want to continue the momentum of filling these gaps in the community. City Housing Services Manager Sarah Buck said this funding 
will help make a dent in some of the demand projected in the city's annual Maxfield Housing Analysis, which shows a need for all types of housing over the coming years. It's especially rare that single-family construction is subsidized, Buck said, so this is an opportunity the city hasn't had since after the 2008 flood gave to give households access to home ownership at an affordable price. The program helps fund multifamily housing at a mix of price points, both market rate and affordable, Pratt said. The city supported the multifamily rentals with a local match through its Standard Incentives Program, a 10-year, 100% tax abatement. These funds also carry additional mitigation requirements to help the properties withstand higher winds and boost the community's resiliency to future disasters. Plus, Buck said these homes will be more energy efficient going beyond normal code requirements. After an environmental review process, Buck said developers should be able to begin construction in the next 90 days or so. Funds have to be used by 2026. We're very excited to get them under construction and get them open and have additional housing available in our community. Overall, Buck said there were nine single-family applications totaling 101 units and 13 multifamily applications for 240 units, 170 of which were affordable. For single-family units in other parts of Lynn County, developer Chad Pelle received $990,000 for a six-unit pocket neighborhood on Lynn County's Dow's Farm Agri-Community Development. Additionally, Adobe Construction received nearly $3.3 million for 20 single-family units in Marion, and Habitat for Humanity received $314,434 for two single-family units in Walker. As for rental units, Emerson received $5.1 million for 42 units in Center Point. In Marion, Jeff Bohr with High Development Corp. received nearly $2 million for 30 units, and Jerry Wadalove was awarded $1.7 million for 20 units. Outside of Lynn County, projects in Marshalltown, State Center, Atkins, and Belle Plaine received a combined total of about $6.3 million for 25 single-family units and 35 rentals. While this money will go toward new single- and multifamily housing construction, there are more disaster relief funds available for other programs. Those applications will be due this spring. Buck said Lynn County has $4.4 million available for tree planting, $1.3 million for generators, and $2.5 million available for owner-occupied home rehabilitation for those who still have derecho damage, for instance, mold issues stemming from water damage. And this Vanessa Miller story is titled Employee Performance Awards at UI Surge in Pandemic. In the face of pandemic-related hurdles, economic headwinds, and heightened competition for employees, the University of Iowa in the 2022 budget year increased its use of monetary prizes to award exceptional and outstanding performance by its employees, nearly doubling the total distributed in 2021. Awarded in up to $300 lump sums to employees who exceed expectations, the UI in 2022 distributed 17,000 three, excuse me, 17,000 
483 of these spot awards, totaling $7.3 million. That's more than double the $3 million distributed through the 2021 budget year and more than 243 times the $29,939 awarded a decade earlier in 2012 through 403 awards. The large increase in SPOT awards is primarily due to the pandemic and specifically the healthcare enterprise and the units that support it directly or indirectly, according to Board of Regents documents outlining its university's use of award programs. Staff efforts increased considerably during the pandemic and non-recurring monetary awards have proven to be an effective way of recognizing employee contributions, UI officials said in an email response to the Gazette's questions. The university in 2022 also increased its number of exceptional performance awards, which can be higher than the spot awards but can't exceed 10% of an employee's base wage from 572 in 2021 to 667. The Regents report on the program to reward good work comes as UI Healthcare reports 500 to 600 open nursing positions. UIHC workers report low morale and demands for higher pay. And the broader campus reports its most faculty resignations since at least 2006 with 92 in fiscal 2022. Of that, 57 were clinical track faculty, 22 were tenure or tenure track faculty, and 13 were research or instructional faculty. Clinical track faculty devote a significant portion of their time providing or overseeing the delivery of professional services to individual patients or clients, UI officials said, the COVID-19 pandemic added significant stresses to our healthcare professionals, including those on our faculty, which may have contributed to some resignations. To retain and attract top-tier faculty and staff, the UI in recent years has employed several strategies and programs, including a transformational faculty hiring program in 2022 to help colleges hire outstanding faculty with up to $1.5 million per hire. Additionally, since creating an endowment fund with revenue obtained through a new utilities partnership in 2020, the UI pulled nearly $12 million for faculty retention and recruitment efforts. Money for the Exceptional Performance and SPOT Awards, which are separate programs, are paid out of departmental operating budgets, UI officials said. UIHC nurses and other healthcare professionals told Regents Wednesday they prefer that money go toward increasing their wages, having recently asked for a 14% pay raise. So much money was spent on traveling nurses during COVID. UIHC senior physical therapist Barb Stannerson told Regents during a public comment portion of their meeting in Urbandale, if that money would have been put toward retaining staff, not with bonuses, but with wages, I can't help but think we'd be in a much better situation than what we're in now. Although the number of UI Exceptional Performance Awards increased in 2022, total dollars distributed under the program dropped $46,400 to just under $2.5 due in part to a large 
largest ever $100,000 award in 2021. That went to UI head football coach Kirk Ferentz, who made a base wage that year of $2.7 million. Ferentz received his contracted $100,000 bowl game bonus through UI's exceptional performance program because the team, while qualifying for a bowl, didn't actually participate as the game was canceled due to COVID-19. His contract stipulates bowl game participation triggers the bonus. In the budget year 2022, 11,777 employees were deemed eligible for the Exceptional Performance Awards, a 12% increase from five years ago. Over 16,300 employees were eligible for the smaller spot awards in 2022, a 54% increase from five years ago. Those increases are due to the UI's expansion of the type of employees eligible for the rewards. Where only non-organized professional and scientific workers could receive awards five years ago, today members of the healthcare union can receive both types of awards, and merit employees like blue-collar, technical, and clerical workers can receive spot awards. Although faculty members weren't eligible for the awards before, both faculty and institutional officers became eligible to receive awards July 1. Regents approved the UI program in 2005 and later expanded it to Iowa State University and the University of Northern Iowa. UNI, for the first time in the 2022 budget year, began offering both exceptional performance and spot awards distributing 75000 through 22 Exceptional Performance Awards and $800 through five spot awards. Turning to the Iowa Today page, this story is by Isabella Zaluska. A mixed-use development with Scooter's Coffee, commercial space, and residential units is coming to the northeast side of Iowa City. The Iowa City Council on Tuesday unanimously approved the first consideration of rezoning 3.87 acres of vacant land on the corner of North Dodge Street and Scott Boulevard, across from Iowa City Fire Station 4. The rezoning still needs to be approved two more times. The City's Planning and Zoning Commission unanimously recommended approval of the rezoning last month. Mark Holtkamp of Solon is working with Axiom Consultants on the project. The land is owned by Green State Credit Union. We feel like this is just a really good infill development in a site that has sat for a long time. Brian Bolk with Axiom Consultants told the council this week the proposed Scooter's Coffee would be located on the corner of North Dodge Street and Scott Boulevard. The mixed-use building will be separate from the coffee shop and is expected to have ground floor retail with upper story residential, consisting of eight one-bedroom units. A restaurant is also proposed for this building. The mixed-use building will not exceed three stories as required by city code. Parking will be behind the buildings and be subject to landscaping requirements to promote an attractive streetscape, according to a city staff report. The residential component will be at the other end of the site and have a separate access. There are nine townhomes planned. Parking will be located behind the building with a shared private alley. The plan also shows through, excuse me, two drive-throughs, one for the coffee shop and the other for an ATM, 
which need approval for a special exception from the city's Board of Adjustment. This land is an infill parcel surrounded by existing development. City staff said the proposed development is compatible with surrounding uses. Surrounding the site are multifamily townhomes, Fire Station 4, the Iowa City Community School District Administration Building, and single-family residential. Mayor Pro Tem Megan Alter said the people who live and work in this area will be able to take advantage of the coffee shop and other establishments. Councilmember Pauline Taylor added that the development is a creative use of infill space. Councilmember John Thomas pointed out the architecture of the development will be important given how visible the area is. A traffic study recommended installing a southeast-bound right turn lane, which city staff recommends as a condition of the rezoning, along with a pedestrian refuge island across Scott Boulevard at Dubuque Street. City staff also recommend any trees removed from the right-of-way be replaced under a landscaping plan approved by the city forester. And turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial today is a reprint from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. This appeared on Wednesday. And the title is Carter's Final Campaign. Jimmy Carter has secured a legacy as probably the greatest former president in modern American history. The former chief executive, whose one term is generally viewed as an almost unmitigated disaster, has spent his many post-presidential years promoting human rights and building houses for the underprivileged, while living modestly in his Plains, Georgia home. As Carter enters hospice there at age 98, his example of selfless public service should stand as a rebuke to many of today's self-interested Democratic and Republican politicians and an inspiration to a nation that lately has too few of them. When Carter emerged on the national scene in 1976, he seemed an antidote to Watergate-era corruption, an unassuming Georgia governor whose genuine religiosity manifested itself in an embrace of civil rights and honest government. Among Carter's first acts after defeating incumbent President Gerald Ford in 1976 and taking office in January 1977 was to pardon all Vietnam War draft evaders, helping close the still lingering national wounds from that misbegotten conflict. That and Carter's central role in achieving peace between Israel and Egypt with the Camp David Accords stand as major accomplishments but they would be dwarfed by his presidency's failure, failure to effectively lead as inflation pummeled America, projecting weakness to the point that Soviet Russia felt undeterred in its invasion of Afghanistan, and most of all, failure to effectively respond to the Iran hostage crisis. Modern post-presidencies are generally a time to build self-aggrandizing presidential libraries, and to accumulate wealth with book writing and speeches. For Carter, in contrast, it has been a time of continued and selfless public service. Carter won the 2002 Nobel Peace Prize for the work of his human rights nonprofit, the Carter Center, conducting global conflict mediation, election monitoring, and disease control. His role in expanding and promoting Habitat for Humanity 
which builds homes for the poor, has been so effective and high profile that many Americans might mistakenly believe he founded the organization. While the person elected to the White House in 2016 continues to devote his post-presidency to bellowing his grievances to anyone who will listen, Carter, in the final stage of his life, still embodies a rare political decency. It's an example that American politics could use right now. And again, that is a reprint from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. 24-Hour Dorman today is, is titled, Will Ethanol Win Again in Iowa? Iowa is a state that can't say no to the ethanol industry, and that leaves some Republican lawmakers in a terrible fix. That's because many of their rural constituents are vehemently opposed to taking land through eminent domain for three carbon capture pipelines proposed by Summit Carbon Solutions, Navigator CO2 Ventures, and Wolf Carbon Solutions. The companies want to build nearly 2,000 miles of pipelines that would capture carbon generated by ethanol plants to be stored underground. On Tuesday, a House panel signed off on a bill, House File 368, which would require the companies to obtain voluntary easements along 90% of a pipeline's path before they could use eminent domain to obtain the rest. The bill also would slap a moratorium on projects until the federal government completes a rewrite of safety rules that govern carbon pipelines. Also, pipeline projects must conform to local ordinances and laws in other states before they could get an all-clear from Iowa regulators. The lead sponsor, Representative Stephen Holt, a Republican from Denison, said he's long supported ethanol, but there are bigger principles here, Holt said, namely property rights. Holt's bill is entirely reasonable. It should be far more difficult to use what he called the blunt force of government to take land for a private project. And it's irresponsible to shove these projects forward before safety rules have been finalized. Yep, totally reasonable. So it probably won't pass. That's because the ethanol industry has upped the ante. The Iowa Renewable Fuels Association released a study it commissioned showing that without the pipelines, Iowa would lose 75% of its ethanol industry and $10.3 billion in revenues annually. Corn prices would drop. The cost of getting ethanol byproducts used as livestock feed would rise. The skies would darken. The earth would quake. The capital's golden dome would rust. Okay, maybe not. So, Basically, if lawmakers act to protect landowners, they'll be ending ethanol as we know it. Instead, the industry wants the legislature to let companies take land, grab billions of dollars in federal tax credits, and make ethanol into a lower carbon fuel that can be marketed in a world seeking to restrict emissions to halt climate change. Ethanol is saved. Well, until the next time the industry needs to be propped up by government action. We've been doing this dance since the 1970s. It all would be easier to swallow if farmers and landowners also were willing to accept regulations directing them to keep our waterways clean. But they want it all, blank checks and no rules. Oh, and a dead zone. King Corn is a dictator. And that's probably what they'll get again. 
Holt's approach has not been embraced by the Senate. And can you envision Governor Kim Reynolds picking people over the profitability of corporate agriculture? I doubt even AI could generate such a scenario. Although I agree with Steve Holt, so anything's possible. Wouldn't it be remarkable to see the legislature do something big that doesn't make many of us cringe or seethe? The skies would darken. Okay, you get the picture. And that's 24-hour Dorman. The community letter today, we have one, is titled, Loosen Laws to Enrich Youth Worth Ethic. I disagree with the Gazette's editorial against expanding the work opportunities for 14- to 16-year-olds. And this is from the article, Lawmakers Shouldn't Loosen Iowa Labor Laws, February 17. I don't see it as pushing kids into dangerous jobs at low pay levels. I also don't see the topic to be such much of a solution to labor shortages. I see it as allowing teenagers and parents to make their own decisions as to how the young person earns money and learns about responsibility. How a young person earns a little cash is between the youth and his parents. I suppose next you'll be telling farm parents that their kids can what their kids can or cannot do. I loved farm work as a kid, learning to drive tractors and trucks. At age 12, I worked around plows and discs and combines and livestock and learned about safety and how to be cautious. As an additional bonus, that gave me a huge step up in my later working career over young people who had been coddled and overprotected and taught that everyone is entitled rather than working toward goals and earning the rewards. I say loosen the laws. And that is signed today by Peter Looney from Marion. You're listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS for today, Thursday, February 23. IRIS is the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituary page, starting with the short notices. First, from Cedar Rapids, Richard Smezhkal, 70, died Tuesday, February 21st. Murdoch-Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Cedar Rapids. From Fort Atkinson, Mary Mosier, 91, died Wednesday, February 22nd. Helms Funeral Home of Decorah is assisting. In Hiawatha, Gary Hawshild, age 80, died Tuesday, February 21st. Home Funeral Home Sigourney is assisting the family. From Tama, Larry Dean, known as Hooch Blocker, age 76, died Wednesday, February 22nd. Cruz Phillips Funeral Home in Tama, Toledo. And also in Tama, Marilyn May Hlas, age 55, died Tuesday, February 21st. Again, Cruz Phillips Funeral Home is assisting the family. And in Vinton, Jean Peterson, age 93, died Monday, February 20. Van Steenheis Tien Funeral Home in Vinton is assisting the family. Just two regular notices today in the obituary column. First, from Cedar Rapids. Sherilyn, known as Sherry Connell, passed away February 16 after a long battle with cancer. We would like to thank the staff of Milestones for enriching her life for over eight years and also Mercy Hospice House for the care they gave her to make the last part of her life comfortable. A GoFundMe page has been set up to hold the cost 
or excuse me, to help with the cost of cremation and funeral expenses for Sherry. And from Cedar Rapids, Mindy Jo Natty Hodges, age 65, passed away Sunday, February 19th at her home. Visitation is from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 23rd at the Legacy Center at Murdoch Linwood in Cedar Rapids with Trisagian service beginning at 6.30 p.m. Funeral Mass is at 10 a.m. Friday, February 24th at St. John the Baptist Greek Orthodox Church in Cedar Rapids. Burial will be at Linwood Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Memorials may be directed to the family for a fund for the Cancer Center at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. You can share a a memory and view Mindy's entire obituary at MurdochFuneralHome.com. And turning now to the sports page, we start with this story. Girls' regional finals are set for Class 5A and 4A. Most of the favorites advanced in Tuesday night's Class 5A and 4A Iowa High School Girls Basketball Regional Finals, but not without a few scares. Sixteen more teams earned their spots in next week's state tournament. Here's a glimpse at games involving area teams. In Class 5A, number 4, West Des Moines Dowling, 59, number 12, Iowa City West, 37. Dowling won its 16th straight game to win its ninth regional title in the last 11 seasons and returned to state for the 24th time. The Maroons led 18-9 after a quarter and 32-20 at halftime. <coughs> Iowa City West finished 16-7. and seven. Number 6, Ankeny Centennial, 35. Number 11, Linmar, 32. In the closest MVC-CIML matchup of the night, Linmar nearly pulled off the upset. Centennial, with a record of 17-6, and six, sophomore Maya Crawford's steal and layup broke a 31-31 tie with 4.07 remaining, and the Jaguars held the Lions without a field goal the rest of the way. Zoe Kennedy got a look at a deep three-point attempt in the final seconds, but it hit the back of the rim. Centennial is state-bound for the third straight year. Number 7, Southeast Polk, 71. Number 7, Iowa City Liberty, 46. Southeast Polk put up 48 points in the first half of a 23-point cushion and got back to state for the fourth time in the last five seasons after missing out last year. Liberty ended a breakthrough campaign with a 14-8 and record. In Class 4A, number 6, Cedar Rapids Xavier, 54, Western Dubuque, 46. It was an easy, and we didn't expect it to be, Tom Lilly said. Sixth-ranked Cedar Rapids Xavier finally sprung itself free in the final two minutes and ended Western Dubuque's improbable postseason run. We saw how they played the last couple of games, said Xavier's Kyla Mason, who posted 21 points and 11 rebounds. We couldn't overlook them. We had to play our absolute best. Number 5, Decora, 67. Number 13, Mason City, 61. Decora, with a record of 21-2, and is state-bound for the first time since 2007. Yasmeen Whitsett hit a tie-breaking three to put Decora up 52-49, to with 3.45 remaining and the Vikings held on. Whitsett finished with 14 points. Senior Haley Gossman stepped up with 21 points to lead the Vikings. 
Briar Dewey, scored 18, including Decorah's first nine of the third quarter. And number 7, Clear Creek Amena, 61, number 10, North Scott, 46. When the stakes are high, sometimes it's necessary to make a bold adjustment. Clear Creek Amana's defensive adjustments paid off. In front of an energized crowd, the Clippers, with a record of 18-4, and four, are headed to the state tournament for the first time since 2020 and the second time in school history. It feels great, Junior, Junior Ava Locklear said. We came into this game looking for this. The Class 5A Monday's quarterfinals will find number 2 Johnston versus number 7 Southeast Polk, Waterloo West versus Ankeny Centennial, number 1 Pleasant Valley versus number 9 West Des Moines Valley, and West Des Moines Dowling versus number 5 Davenport North. Semifinals will be on March 2 and the final on March 3. In Class 4A, Tuesday's quarterfinals find number 1 Dallas Center Grimes playing Glenwood, Ballard versus Decora, North Polk versus Clear Creek Amana, and Sioux City Heelan versus number 6 Cedar Rapids Xavier. Those semifinals will be played on March 2 and the final on March 4. In Boys District, Peterson shoulders the load and excuse me, Peterson shoulders the load and guides Monticello to a win. This story by Jeff Johnson. So Tate Peterson, exactly how injured are you? I'm all right, he said. Monticello's senior point guard really isn't all right. He's been playing with a bad right shoulder for almost two months. He's a right-handed shooter. If you're curious, I just try not to think about it. Peterson said after his 28 points helped Monticello past ninth-ranked Albernet, 57-51, in a Class 2A district final boys basketball game Tuesday night. I just tried to get through the day with some ibuprofen. Peterson sprained his AC joint and strained some other muscles near his collarbone when he was landed on, diving for a loose ball in a game January 6th against center point Urbana. He missed four games, but ultimately decided to gut things out. Tuesday's offensive outburst included making four three-pointers. He at times simply took over a game that was tight the entire way. His caper was a driving shot with one second left on the shot clock and under 30 in the game that gave his team a seven-point lead. Peterson sent Monticello's career-scoring record and sent the Panthers 16-6 and to Saturday night's sub-state final against number 3 Applington Parkersburg 21-2 and in the process. That game will be at Dyke. Monticello is seeking its fourth consecutive state tournament appearance, all with Peterson as its lead guard. I've always prided myself on being a winner, said Peterson, who will play collegiately at Kirkwood. I've got great coaches and great teammates. We all have the same mindset. Just win, beat whoever is in front of us. Monticello was virtually everyone's top-ranked team in 2A to begin this season because of the presence of Peterson and fellow All-Stater Preston Reese. But this has been a banged-up club a lot of the way, one that finally seems to be getting healthy and finding its way at the exact right time. Survive in advance, and we survived because Albernet is a really good team, Coach Tim Lambert said. 
turning now to the Hoopla section, Just the Ticket is the title of this cover story by Elijah Decius. After pandemic changes over the last few years, 2023 Restaurant Week in Coralville, Iowa City, North Liberty, and Solon is returning to its roots with a week-long celebration plus a new philanthropic element. From February 18 to 27, diners can track their participation with the IC Foodie Passport by collecting stamps after prefix menu orders at participating restaurants. Those who collect three or more stamps will be entered into a grand prize drawing for gift cards from local restaurants to continue exploring. Diners can give back while eating out by participating in the new Foodie Philanthropy Food Drive. Simply drop off non-perishable food donations through the end of February at Think Iowa City's office, 900 First Avenue in Coralville. Donations will be distributed to the through the Coralville Community Food Pantry, North Liberty Community Pantry, and Community Crisis Services. This year, 25 restaurants are participating with lunch and dinner menus to recalibrate the life of Johnson County's foodie scene. You can see the full menu of each at thinkiowacity.com slash events slash foodie February participating restaurants. Also in the hoopla section, this article is titled No Stopping Leo Kotke. If you go, Leo Kotke is performing at the Englert Theater March 2nd at 7.30 p.m. Ticket prices are 23 to 52.50. This story is by Ed Condren. It's evident that Leo Kotke would rather be on a stage than at home. With the exception of the pandemic period, the acoustic guitar virtuoso has been primarily on the road. Since the release of his first album, 1969's 12-string blues, Kotke has often played more than 300 dates a year. There's something magical about stepping on a stage in front of an audience, Kotke said. I've never gotten tired of it. That's considerable wear and tear, but Kotke continues on after battling tendonitis and tinnitus. Kotke can't hear as well as he once did, but that doesn't let it bother him. I just keep moving on, Kotke said, but I remember what it was like when I could hear well. When I was little, I could follow one grain of sand in a wheel well, with my ears, of course. I could hear snowfall. Kotke, at age 77, doesn't let anything stand in his way. The Athens, Georgia native is an uncompromising original from a city that has also birthed some quirky and seminal artists as R.E.M., the B-52s, and Vic Chestnut. Kotke, who will be, be performing March 2nd at the Englert in Iowa City, connects via his unconventional finger-picking style while easily veering from folk to blues to jazz. Who knows what his set list will encompass, since the energetic bard has endless songs thanks to his 23-album canon. In the food category also, Marco's Grilled Cheese is set to add two new locations. The founder of an iconic Iowa City brand is expanding his reach into brick-and-mortar locations with two simultaneous openings. Marco's Grilled Cheese, currently at 117 North Lynn Street, plans to open two new locations by mid-April, 
on the east side of Iowa City and in Coralville. The new Iowa City location at 1621 South 1st Avenue will fill the vacancy left by Milio's. The Coralville site will be moving into 517 2nd Street, a former pita pit on the Coralville Strip. The two new locations, similar in size to the flagship Lynn Street restaurant, will offer more focused menus with potential for late-night service and delivery. Owner Mark Paterno hopes to cut down his current menu by about 30% to focus on sandwiches, burgers, tacos, and other specialties. I'm looking for efficiency, speed more than anything. Paterno, who also owns Marco's Island and George's Best Euros in Iowa City, told the Gazette. Earlier last year, he had no intentions of opening one new location, let alone two. But as two locations that fit his criteria came open at the same time, he took the opportunity to triple the restaurant's footprint in Johnson County. I'm really optimistic. Both locations are going into places where there aren't a lot of late-night options, he said. With these new locations, I'm going to try to offer service day and night. The expansion follows the brick-and-mortar expansions of George's Best Giros and Marco's Island last year. Both started as food carts. Paterno said Marco's Island may evolve into a space for budding restaurateurs to try their hand with temporary pop-up restaurants. That restaurant currently is available for private parties only. From food truck to ghost kitchen to brick and mortar, Rio Burritos is reopening once again, this time in a space of its own in Cedar Rapids. The restaurant, previously in Rapid Foods Cloud Kitchen at 4444 First Avenue Northeast, is moving up the street to 5001 First Avenue Southeast, the short-lived home of La Chamba. Owner Phoebe Rios hopes to have the new location op opened by March 1st. Rios opened her first brick-and-mortar restaurant in 2002 with Rios in Marion and later owned Salsa Del Rio in downtown Cedar Rapids from 2010 to 2012. Rio Burritos, the current restaurant's name, operated out of a food truck from 2015 until 2020 when the derecho damaged the truck. With tacos, burritos, and quesadillas, Rio Burritos focuses on a street-style preparation. Rio Burritos moved out of its cloud kitchen on January 29. La Chamba closed suddenly in July 22 after only four months in business. We have time to return to the Iowa Today page for this story. Lawmakers move two bills to restrict traffic cameras. This by Caleb McCullough for the Gazette-Lee-Des Moines Bureau. Cities and counties would lose authority to set up automated traffic cameras and collect revenue under a pair of bills lawmakers advanced on Wednesday. One bill would require local governments to receive approval from the State Department of Transportation before placing a traffic camera on an interstate or state highway. Local governments could put traffic cameras only in high crash or high risk locations and would have to exhaust all other traffic enforcement options before putting up an enforcement camera. The bill, House Study Bill 161, mirrors regulations set by the Iowa DOT before those rules were struck down in 2018 by the state Supreme Court in an appeal by Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, and Muscatine. 
the court found the State Department could not regulate city traffic cameras. There have been several attempts since then to rein in the use of these devices, which some lawmakers see as an infringement of privacy and argue cities are abusing them to raise revenue. We do believe some kind of statewide regulatory framework is necessary, said Representative Phil Thompson, a Republican from Boone, who chairs the Public Safety Committee. This is essentially just codifying what the DOT tried to do in 2018. The bill passed the subcommittee with only Republican support. Cities and counties also would be required to submit a yearly report to the Iowa DOT on the effectiveness of the cameras, which the state would use to determine whether to keep them in place. Representatives for cities and law enforcement agencies argued the bill would remove the control cities have to regulate traffic. There are at least 10 cities that have traffic cameras in place. Three cities, LeClaire, Cedar Rapids, and Des Moines, have speed cameras on interstate highways. If the legislature is looking to provide a regulatory framework, I think we can work toward that, but adding state government into this would be difficult. David Adelman, a lobbyist for the Metropolitan Coalition, told lawmakers. The Metropolitan Coalition represents Iowa's 10 largest cities. Lobbyists also said the cameras reduce crashes and keep police out of high-risk areas. Doug Struck, a lobbyist for the city of Des Moines, said the traffic camera on Interstate 235 keeps police from pulling drivers over in a dangerous area of the road. There's no place to be, and you're going to end up injuring and killing officers, and you're going to injure the public by pulling people over and enforcing traffic there, he said. Another bill, House File 313, would direct the revenues gathered from traffic cameras to the state road use tax fund, a fund that pays for state and local road improvements. Vehicle registration fees and fuel taxes are currently directed to the fund. Cities again opposed the bill, saying it would take away significant money that cities use to fund police positions and ease property taxes. What this bill is doing is removing dollars that have gone to public safety, to police, to EMS, to fire, and removing those dollars from local law enforcement, Edelman said. Larry Murphy, a lobbyist for the Iowa Police Chiefs Association and Cedar Rapids, said the city of Cedar Rapids uses its traffic camera revenues to fund 11 police positions, which would lose that funding source if the state redirects the money. The bill passed the subcommittee with only Republican support. Lawmakers advanced a bill earlier this month that would restrict cities to placing traffic cameras on city roads and counties on county roads and allowing the Iowa DOT to place traffic cameras on state roads. The bills would need to advance through a committee before next Friday, the first funnel deadline, to remain viable this session, and Thompson said he isn't ruling any of them out. I'm going to give all these bills a subcommittee hearing and try to gather as much feedback and try to put together some kind of framework, Thompson said. And Potsy brings happy days to a car show in Monticello, this by Diana Nolan. The cool cars are back and so is Anson Williams. The KCRG TV9 O'Reilly Auto Parts Rod and Custom Car Show is revving up for its 54th consecutive year. 
the annual showcase of unusual and classic cars and motorcycles will be held Saturday and Sunday at the Berndez Center in Monticello, 35 miles from Cedar Rapids and Dubuque via Highway 151. Williams, nominated for a Golden Globe for portraying Potsy Weber on Happy Days from 1974 to 1984, attended the 2007 show with cast member Aaron Moran. He's flying solo this year, coming from California for three meet-and-greets, featuring autographs, photos, and conversations. These sessions are slated for noon to 4 p.m. and 6 to 9 p.m. on Saturday and 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Sunday. If you go, again, the car show is from 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Saturday, February 25th, and 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. Sunday, February 26th. Admission is $10 for adults, $5 for children, ages 12 and under are free with a paid adult. Finishing up with a look at the weather, a chance of snow yet today and tomorrow, possibly late. We are seeing partly cloudy in the forecast for Saturday and Sunday, a high of 34 today and a low of 6, where the normal high is 36 and the normal low is 19. A record high of 64 degrees was set in 1930. A record low of 12 degrees below zero was set in 2015. Sunset tonight is at 5.50 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 6.50 a.m. That gives us 10 hours and 59 minutes of daylight. And we're in the new moon phase with moonrise at 8.46 a.m. and moonset at 10.10 p.m. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, February 23. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening and have a great, safe day.
In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her must walk miles every day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom that expands their minds and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong, finally free of sicknesses caused by dirty water. At World Vision, care about clean water runs deep. Deep enough to reach one new person with clean water every 10 seconds. Because every child, every person, everywhere deserves clean water and the chance to rise to their full potential. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org.